text we'll be looking at this morning is printed in your bulletin. If you've been with us uh, really through the end of the summer, the tail end, we have been looking at the 12 steps. Um, for some people, that's a very familiar territory. Uh, you kind of know the steps well, and you've been a part, they've been a part of your life. For others, uh, it seems really odd uh, that we'd even be talking about this, especially in church. Um, I've had people ask me, aren't the, uh, the steps really about how to handle addiction? Um, the answer to that is uh, yes and no. This is, it depends on how you define addiction. The reality is, uh, if you were with us when we looked at this, all of us, no matter where we come from this morning, are shipwrecked. We are, um, as one writer said, addicts by nature. Addiction is really just a modern term, a name, a description for what uh, the Bible traditionally has called sin. And medieval Christians actually called them passions or attachments. What's recognized by all of them is this. It takes something serious uh, to break through those illusions and those entrapments. Substances uh, that we know of, substance addictions, are just the most visible ones. Uh, but actually all of us are locked into our own habits, ways of doing things, our own defenses, especially our patterns of thinking or how we process and respond to the world around us. Are these just a reflection of biblical principles? Well, once again, yes and no. Um, they're more than just principles that you can take or leave. I think I've said this almost every week. It is the way that you have an intimate relationship with God. Paul phrases it this way, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which sounds an awful lot like step one, which says that we're powerless. I can't imagine somebody being more powerless than a dead person. Um, am I saying, and have I been saying, that everyone, especially if you're a Christian, should be working the 12 steps? Well, that depends. And here's my answer to that. If you want to grow, if you want to mature, if you would like freedom from your thought patterns, if you want to lose your defenses, if you want to change or Matter better than that, if you want to change your relationships, then yes, the 12 steps are for you. What's odd to me is that uh, people really balk and push against the idea of the 12 steps, and yet recovery is simply this. It's recovering from our brokenness and the effects of the fall that harass us at every turn that none of us are immune from. Look with me as I read from John chapter 4, a really uh, familiar story and perhaps uh, one of my favorite, actually, in the entire New Testament. Look with me what John writes. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them 
a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. But they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of town and made their way toward him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now you'd be with us as we look into this story, a really familiar one to many of us. Uh, about your son encountering, engaging a young lady long ago, and yet all of us, we need to encounter, engage you again this morning. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sub school teacher is trying to teach the children in her class about confession, what it is and how to do it, and she came up with this brilliant idea. She asked the children to write down everything that they'd done the previous week, take it home, and pray it with their parents and ask God to forgive them. Well, little Timmy did just that. He said, um, he sat down with his mother that evening, and this is what he said. He said, Dear God, I'm sorry I stole a comic book from the store. Uh, I'm sorry I said curse words and that I tried a cigarette, but most of all, I'm sorry I beat up Billy. Um, amen. The mom was just stunned and almost speechless, and she asked him, Tim, when did you do those things? And his reply was this, oh, this isn't my list, this is Mark's. Um, he knew if he took it home, he'd get into trouble, so I took it for him. <laughs> it really brings us to the first of, uh, we're going to look at three steps and finish out this series this morning, 10, 11, and 12. They're called the maintenance steps, and they really uh, go together almost as a unit. And step 10 looks like this, continue to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. This encourages us this story actually as well as steps encourages us to this sort of examination that we find occurring between Jesus and this young woman just imagine if you were uh, at the scene and you were to ask this young lady for an honest appraisal of where she was in her life or better question would be this um, tell me what are your biggest concerns your deepest issues I imagine her answer would be something like this, since we know from the story that she comes to this well alone. I don't have friends. Um, my life isn't going so well. I don't, my relationships really are terrible. And by the way, all those things would have been true, but not necessarily what lies at the heart of her problem, which is what Jesus gets to. Imagine if you'd ask the people of her town, um, her community, uh, those that have surrounded her, 
uh, and obviously those who were not with her, what was her biggest problem? They would have likely said something like this, that woman is incredibly immoral. She has absolutely no standards. She is really just a horrible person. Which is truly why she came alone to this well. Her life, actually when she shows up here, and when Jesus shows up, is just a complete wreck. And so she comes alone. And he engages her in this, what to us is an odd discussion to get at, to sort of expose, to get her to take a personal inventory. What are the deep issues? What actually is going on in your life? And he does it by talking about this idea of living water. She seems to think, at least initially, that he's talking about this well until he sort of digs a little bit deeper. And he begins to ask her about her husband's. Now, some writers think that Jesus has tried one tact with the lady. Um, he's talked about water. She can't seem to follow along. So now he's going to take a different tact. But actually, these are actually the same things. He's addressing the same issues. He throws her riddles to begin to at least get her to start asking questions and examining her own life. The stress, the strain of her life is actually what's most vivid in the story. She's tired of this trip alone. She's tired of men. She's tried them. She's tried sex. That hasn't worked. Men, relationships, husbands are her water. That's where she looks for life. And what this shows is that she has to have the intervention of Jesus. Examination. The kind is called for in step 10. Continue to take a personal inventory, when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Examination is exceedingly difficult. In fact, it's virtually impossible. All of us, no matter where we come, we will either go really easy on ourselves or we will go really hard on ourselves. Extremely difficult to be merciful, humble, and honest. One writer said this, we all tend toward either self-abuse or self-righteousness. And neither one of them is the gospel and why Jesus must show up for this kind of inventory and this examination. What's stunning to me is at the end of the story, I don't know if you picked up on this, she goes back to the town that all these people that hated her guts and thought she was horrible, um, she goes back to them and this is what she says, he told me everything I ever did. And she seems to be happy about it. Um, she's not depressed or discouraged or overwhelmed. She's not crushed. Instead, she's overjoyed that this one finally knows her. Continue to take a personal inventory. This, that's the what. Now the when. Uh, how long did this encounter take? Not long. This inventory that we're talking about is really a daily, almost an immediate thing. Um, it is a recognition, an awareness, a self-awareness might be the best description of it. St. Ignatius in the 1500s offered several spiritual exercises to Christians. One of the ones that he gave them was the prayer of examine, which, by the way, is still used today. It's really quite simple if you were to ever read this prayer. At the close of the day, what it says is that you remember moments that glorified God the most and those that glorified him the least. 
Moments where you felt most alive and yet at the same time where you felt least alive. This step, even this story, calls on us to keep a short list because we can't stand the idea that things would build up again. We've been there. We've done that. We've carried that kind of baggage and we don't want to do that anymore. Some of us here this morning, you recall things that have been done to you years ago with a freshness that is hard to even imagine. You carry that stuff around. It's, it's sad and really it's sick. One of the deep ones that we know of is self-pity. We constantly need to revisit this. God wants to have a say in that examination. You know, I have to say, I wonder what the church would look like. I wonder what we would look like if we allowed God that kind of access to our lives. Maybe we'd look like this woman in the story. It's not just an examination. It's the orientation. It's the whole reason uh, that he meets her at this well. This isn't an accidental occurrence. That somehow he just happens to be there and this woman just happens to show up uh, from all the wrong places with all the wrong things going on in her life. She just happens to show up at the right time to ask for water. This encounter, this story, is all about engagement. And what's amazing is the dialogue. She's uh, deflecting is the best word I can. She's thinking and deflecting. She's trying to shift the conversation away. She's throwing out uh, religious objections and political ones. She's trying to get this guy off track to get him off the idea that there's living water and that she's looked for it in all these relationships. The 11th step says, Salt through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. We tend to think of prayer, honestly, as some kind of um, really mystical sort of thing, as a lit candle kneeling beside a bed or some other posture. In the Bible, what's stunning is prayer takes... Um, every form that you can ever imagine. Through prayer and meditation, it creates in this story what Jesus does, asking her questions, probing. He creates an intellectual curiosity for her. Who is this guy and how does he know these things? He throws her riddles. He wants to create opportunity and awareness on her part. This is about engagement and encounter. The step says this, that we sought through prayer and meditation only for the knowledge of His will. We've turned the idea of God's will into some kind of mystical secret that nobody knows. It's not something secret. Really, the, uh, the simplicity of this step is stunning because really all He's asking is, what does God want me to do today, right now? And we've deformed this to the point that it's hardly recognizable. Why would I say that? Our prayers look nothing like what the step is describing here, and it looks nothing like her encounter with Jesus. Instead, our prayers look a lot like control. What do I mean by that? We do a lot of telling God what to do in our prayers. How He should run things, or better, really actually what we do is we tell Him how we should run things, but He should be on board with that. Even when we consider our prayer life, it looks a lot like a checklist. Even when we think, okay, God wants me to do this, how often do I have to do this? How long do I have to do this? When do I get to not do this anymore? Um, because we're best at asking 
We're best when we're asking, what do you want me to do right now? And it's not just the knowledge, it's also the ability. And give me the ability, the desire to do it. A rector at St. Philip's Cathedral in Atlanta tells a story about he was approached by a member of his congregation and asked if if he would teach him to pray. Uh, The guy was, uh, by all descriptions, he was rough, he was old, he was salty, a lot like me. Um, He set up this appointment for this guy to show up to learn to pray. So the priest does what we do. He started talking about orthodox breath prayers, the Lord's Prayer, prayers of the hour, prayers of thanksgiving. He told this guy all that he could tell him about prayers. When he was finished, the old guy just looked sad and confused. And this is what he said. Usually I get up in the morning and say, thank you. And when I go to bed at night, I say, I'm sorry. I must really be doing this wrong. Would you say that your conscious contact, your relationship with God is better now than three months ago. Your prayers look like just a big long list of things that God needs to correct in order for you to be happy. See, this step sort of just strips all that down and makes it so simple that it's hard to even, hard to take it all in. The only concern Our only concern. If you're a Christian this morning, your only concern is what God wants you to do and then actually empowering you to be able to do that without qualifications. And finally, what you see in the story, and this is probably uh, the best part of this, is the proclamation. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Just... Proclamation is really a gift, is the only description of it. Jesus reaches across in this story every boundary that could ever be erected. When I say she was wrong everything, I mean everything. Uh, Racially, she's uh, not the right race. Um, She is the wrong religion, and she's certainly the wrong gender. And then in verse 7, you find the little detail that she's desperately alone. Why is that important? Because women came to the well together. It was a social event uh, in the ancient Near East. This woman is a sexual outcast. She is a moral reject. Her life has completely exploded, and no one in her community wanted to be with her except Jesus. If you knew the gift, it's a gift. It's grace, and what's Stunning about this, it is a surprise to everyone, including the disciples. They're shocked when they come back and he's sitting there with a woman, so much so that they didn't even want to ask the questions that really were burning in their mind. See, what makes a gift valuable? What makes a child gift valuable? Is it the gift or the giver? Um, Because we know that for a gift really to matter, a little bit of the giver has to be in the gift. For a really good gift, it's essential first that the giver be in the gift and next the receiver know and receive it as actually a gift. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, Rings and jewels are not gifts, but apologies for a gift. The only gift is a portion of yourself. 
And yet Jesus reaches across and he gives this woman this gift, this water, this life, this satisfaction that she has skipped from person to person, relationship to relationship, looking for that kind of security, longing for that kind of love. It's cost her absolutely nothing, and yet you know that no gift, no really good gift is without price. There must be payment, right? And that's what Jesus gets at down at the bottom when she says, I know the Messiah, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. See, there has to be a cost. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a temple. And what Jesus is saying is that temple is me. He became thirsty so that you would not have to. You remember on the cross he said, I thirst. The reason for that simply is this, so that you would never experience that kind of hunger, that kind of loss. How do you know that you've had that kind of encounter with Jesus? Well, just look at her. What happens to her? Uh, She comes to this one. In fact, that's what she invites everyone in her village who despises her to come and do. And he tells her everything about her life. Uh, Not just the things that she thinks are problematic. Instead, the deep issues that are driving everything else. Why is she so alone? Because she seeks relationships where there are none. And what happens is she loses every relationship because of it. If you notice in the story, she also leaves her jars. This maybe was the most valuable thing that this woman owned. She leaves them. Suddenly, they're not important to her anymore. And then lastly, she has this gift. It's a costly gift. So what does she do with it? And this is what's stunning. Leaving her jar, the woman goes back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She goes back to the people that rejected her. She's no longer inferior to them. Uh, They probably don't think any different of her right now than they ever did. And yet she's not driven by that anymore. She's also not superior talking down to them. I met the Messiah and you haven't. There's none of that going on. Instead, what really is happening here, she has a gift, a, a transforming sort of gift, a transforming encounter, and she's driven now Uh, Jesus doesn't tell her to do this, by the way, in the story. She's driven to carry that message to others. Uh, This would be um, actually step 12. Having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. If you're a Christian this morning, you've observed, you've experienced God's work in your life. Sometimes that work has been incredibly joyful, And then most of the times, that's been incredibly hard. If you know that, you're driven, actually, to invite others to join us in that kind of recovery. That change is real. It can actually occur for guys in recovery, the ones that I've met. They do this without embarrassment, just naturally and easy. Like water off a duck's bag is not a problem. They're not bothered by this at all. And why not? Having had a spiritual awakening, see, these steps, this encounter with God, it saved them. It delivered them. It brought them life. It ended the futility, the wasted years and days, the frustration, 
fear and the worry. Malcolm Mudridge writes this, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me on the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the Internal Revenue Service. I guess that's success. Furnished with enough money and little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of sort of trendy diversions, he says, and that's pleasure. It might happen that once in a while I said something or wrote something that was sufficiently heady for me to persuade myself that I had some kind of serious impact on my time and the people around me. And that's fulfillment, maybe. He said, yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they're nothing. They're nothing less than an impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to those that are thirsty, irrespective of who they are, irrespective of what they are. Do you know that water? Do you know that kind of joy? If you do, you cannot not take it to others. You cannot not invite people into recovery with you because we're recovering by God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love and mercy that you call on us as your people to celebrate our recovery, to celebrate what you've done in and among us, and you call on us to take that same message to those around us, to a world struggling, to a world that's hurting, to a world that's broken, that they might be healed. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.